It's been said that Christian music sucks. On The Antidote, we dispel that myth as we explore the artistry of Christian bands, listen to in-depth interviews and music from these faith-based groups. For unique and innovative music ranging from metalcore to indie folk, you'll hear it all on The Antidote with Dave Hawkins. Wednesdays at 9 on Trent Radio, 92.7 FM, Peterborough.
you found the antidote with Dave Hawkins. Our opening track tonight was Oamidophobia, which is a great word to look up on Google. And that was from Showbread. Now, I've been a fan of Showbread ever since I first heard their debut studio release, No Sir, Nihilism Is Not Practical, back in 2004. Showbread frontman Josh Dines is simply put a brilliant and uncompromising lyricist and musician. Josh joined the antidote to discuss Showbread's new album, Cancer, and offered some insights into their discography and their motivations as a band. Now we've got a lot of music and interview segments to play tonight, so we're going to jump right into the talk with Josh and then the track Nothing Matters Anymore. Josh Dyes, frontman and lead vocalist for the band Showbread, is here with us. Josh, thanks for joining The Antidote. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to start back at the very basics of Showbread. Can you explain the word Showbread and how it came to be chosen as the name of your band? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was 14 when the band started. It was almost 15 years ago now. My older brother started the band and invited me to join it. And at the time, it was as silly as I think they were flipping around in a concordance or or some kind of biblical glossary and thought that it was a funny word or a a fun thing to call a band. And uh, as our story kind of began to unravel that same year, Our origin was kind of marked by this interesting debacle in uh, southeast Georgia in the the U.S. and Southern Baptist Church, and we were kind of doing an unconventional thing and ended up being asked to leave the church. And at that point, uh, we decided to do a band for real, because before then it was kind of just a hobbyist type of thing. And we were going to change the name of the band, but someone was reading in uh, the Gospels at that time this story when uh, Jesus actually used the example of uh, showbread, which was this like consecrated bread that they kept in the temple um, pre-Jesus or during his time. And the, he used it as this example of kind of speak out against traditionalism over compassion or, um, you know, the traditionalism over doing what was right. And we kind of related to that because of uh, what had happened to us. And uh, we decided that we would keep the name around. So now it's like a blessing and a curse because it did end up getting retroactively imbued with meaning, but it is very silly sounding. So it keeps us humble. So it works both ways. Yeah, that's right. You brought up about your early days. Now, I was told that you guys were still in diapers when the band uh, started, but I guess that's (laughs) not true if you were 14. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, some would call 14 diapers. I know for me, it was might as well have had diapers on. Once it gets past my age, they start calling them uh, Depends. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on the way there myself.
talked about being controversial. Showbread, I guess, at times has been considered controversial. I think that early on, we were we had, you know, one foot in the Christian music industry and one foot in the uh, secular music industry, and we felt and do feel called more so to the non-Christian realm of the arts and the music industry, because Showbread exists uh, for the sole purpose of telling people about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, why we've decided to follow Jesus, the you know the news that we think Jesus is king of the world, that he's back from the dead, all those things, and uh, to kind of preach to the choir and tell people that already know about that uh, constantly is a, a tad self-defeating for our, our mission statement. So we, we do exist, you know, playing in churches and in the Christian music industry and all that stuff, and we do speak to uh, the church in the statements that we make as well. But more so our calling is to people that are not following Jesus yet. So we kind of decided early on when we realized the way that the Christian music industry uh, operates at times, there can be this expectation for cleanliness where, you know, you don't you don't talk about this and you don't go this way. And if you, you know, you don't put this on the cover of your record and things like that, uh, this is just the way the industry works. We uh, had to decide 
pretty quickly like, well, will we cater to this or will we just do what we think is best for our, uh, you know, our mission statement, our purpose, what we think is most effective to communicate what we want to communicate. And we decided the latter, that we would do what we felt was best, what we felt like Jesus wanted us to do. And if, you know, people were going to be upset with that on either end of the spectrum, then it would be sort of worthwhile as long as we felt like we were doing what we, you know, like needed to do. Um, and I guess for that reason, certain things, you know, whether it be lyrics or imagery or content, have come under a bit of scrutiny here and there throughout the career. And it's this really funny balancing act because um, in a lot of ways we're, we're too preachy for the, you know, the, the straightforward secular industry because we talk about Jesus so much. But then we're also a little bit too zany for the, uh, for the straightforward Christian industry because we don't shy away from, you know, like certain topics and things like that. So some people mm. don't know what to do with this whole thing. But you opted out of the three-piece church Christianity. We did. Well, you know, like I think at the beginning of the story, uh, we were super young and it was like, let's, you know, fight back against this traditionalism and fight back against, you know, what was we felt the way that we had been treated. But we actually have no animosity toward the church. We all would prefer uh, unity and all kinds of different various expressions of the church to be able to come together and unite, even with conventional, unconventional, traditional, non-traditional, all that kind of thing. We just will not cater to certain expectations if we feel like they violate our mission statement, if that makes any sense. The song A Man with a Hammer may be considered controversial due to both the raw lyrical imagery as Josh Dyes describes how we all have sin in our lives in both obvious and less obvious measures.
Obviously, in the past, you'd included reference to horror movies in a number of your songs. Welcome to Plainfield Toby Hooper, you know, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame, and George Romero will be at our wedding, who, of right. course, was director of Night of the Living Dead, and the title from the movie Dead by Dawn. Is this like a horror movie obsession that was coming into your songs? A little bit. Myself and a couple of the other guys in the band kind of grew up on horror cinema in a way, and it was not to sound too cliche or pretentious about it, but it was inspirational to us in a sense because there's a, especially in the horror genre of movie making, this very strong sense of do it yourself, low budget, get the job done, and and you can still make this grandiose vision come to life. A lot of the influential horror movies of the 70s and 80s, you know, 
or even the late 60s, Night of the Living Dead, or Halloween, you know, Friday the 13th, all those kind of things were these movies that were made by people who weren't qualified to make movies, or who didn't have enough money to make movies, and who did it anyway. And that was really influential to me uh, as a teenager that was like, wow, these guys, they didn't care about uh, a Hollywood system, or they didn't care about um, being educated in filmmaking or anything. They just went and did it. And to me, that was kind of like the punk rock version of movie making. And I thought that that was really cool. And that inspired me as a, as a musician and as an artist. So there was a lot of residual influence in that that was kind of working its way into the lyrics with the first couple of records. But we thought it would be interesting to take those concepts and kind of pin this theological undercurrent uh, beneath them with songs like, you know, Welcome to Plainfield, Toby Hooper, which is really about like the dynamic of how a Jesus following person ingests art. Is it okay to look at something that people think is offensive? Is it, you know, like how should a Christian relate to the art? And, you know, we dress it up in really abstract, funny ways and then pin a a silly sounding song title on it with Toby Hooper's name in it. But uh, it's just a way of putting all these fun pieces together. Well, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot and ask, what's your favorite horror movie of all time? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I would say it would either be Day of the Dead, which is the third in the in the George Romero Dead series, or maybe The Fly, the uh, 1984, 89 version of uh, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. I like those. Yeah, David Cronenberg. A Canadian himself. Dead by Dawn by Showbread.
writing smellings on words that were said Her body in pieces, my hand cut away The ever-enchanting book of the dead Sun won't rise, my spirit dies All hope has withdrawn Here I lay, you can see the way I know we'll all be Showbread has had Reese Roper of Five Iron Frenzy as a guest vocalist on a number of songs over the years. Tell us how you hooked up with Reese. Well, a bunch of us, when we were doing the first record, were huge Five Iron fans, huge Brave St. Saturn fans. And uh, Brave St. Saturn, Reese's you know, other band, was on Tooth & Nail when Showbread first signed to Tooth & Nail Records. So one of the first things we did was call our A&R guy and ask him if he could get us Reese's email address so we could ask him to come sing on our first record with Tooth & Nail. We thought, it, you know, like it's a shot in the dark, not like Reese would be above it or anything, but, you know, people have busy schedules. We shot him an email and asked him if he'd be willing to come out to California and sing on a song on our first album, and he was extremely gracious and kind and said absolutely. He was recording, uh, I believe it was um, his little solo effort, uh, Roper's first record, and at the same time, so he just drove like a rental car like two hours into North Northern California, um, was there for one day, a song he had never heard before, lyrics he had never read before, and just like in a few takes, knocked it out of the park. And we had a ton of fun working on it together and became friends. Uh, we toured with Roper, you know, invited him to collaborate with us some more on different things. And yeah, it was just one of those really unique times when a, one of your heroes turns out to be a heck of a nice fellow and you get along swimmingly. So that my transgressions were born a withered fruit The sun has scorched the rising plants Alas, they have no The bleached bones of animals Bound by leather strips Dance through the air with laughter As I will this wicked whip Thank you. 
places Judas offers some of the most beautiful lyrical content I've ever heard and puts that at the top of my list. Can we run through your discography and you give a brief synopsis on each of the albums? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Okay. You brought out your first studio album, No Sir, Nihilism is Not Practical, in 2004. Your thoughts on it? Uh, Well, Nihilism is the fan favorite record. Uh... At the time, we were extremely influenced by a Swedish punk band called Refused, 
and that record reflects that really strongly, I think. The fans say that it's spastic and chaotic and all those things that they really liked at the time. I think it's great. I love that record. To me, now looking back at it, I can see that it was a uh, like lightning in a bottle type of thing where we didn't really know what we were doing yet. We had never had a really pleasant studio experience. And we went out to work with uh, this mega producer, Sylvia Massey and uh, Rich Veltrop and instantly had this incredible collaborative spirit. And we were experimenting in the studio and trying all kinds of different things. And they totally understood the record that we wanted to make, even though we didn't really understand. Despite us not knowing anything, that record came out incredibly. So I think I like it. I I get a little uh, frustrated throughout the years when fans hold it up as the paradigm of a showbread record. But, you know, that's to be expected, I guess.
Gossip, the song Mouth Like a Magazine. Now, number two was Age of Reptiles in 2006, but you guys had expressed some disappointment as a band with that album. Yeah, well, it's such a bizarre experience because the first record did really well and the record label was really happy with it. And we had demoed a few songs that we were, were going to end up on Age of Reptiles. And those songs are all on the record and they were leaning more towards uh, you know, a palatable record compared to the first one, which was really jarring and crazy and spastic. And Tooth & Nail's parent label, EMI, had heard songs on nihilism like Mouth Like a Magazine and, and thought that there was a lot of potential for radio play and you know, like mainstream success, but the record was just too crazy to really market it based on that one single. So they were like, I wish we had a, you know, a record full of singles. And we honestly weren't writing because of that, but it happened to go that way. Um, that record was more you know, influenced by the bands that we were really into when we were teenagers, you know, Nirvana and uh, Weezer, alternative bands in the 90s, R.E.M., mm-hmm. stuff like that. And uh, So the songs were coming out really catchy, and the label was excited, and so a ton of money went into that record, and a ton of time went into recording it. And it ended up being like the uh, the sophomore a slump as far as us getting along and collaborating. There was a ton of argument and deliberation over what the record should be like. And parts of the, the finished product reflect that tension, I think, in a way. Even so, by the grace of God, I'm extremely happy with the album that you put in and listened to. I think that it's one of the catchiest things we ever did. It, it has like a listening power that holds up over time. It doesn't like wear out in my own personal estimation. And that's, you know, that's my gauge by the success of a record. What matters most to me is if I'm satisfied with it. And I am. Like, I, I like the record. It's just the experience that orbits around the finished product that's really like, in some ways, unpleasant. But we also managed to have fun. So it's just. It was a very uh, tumultuous time. It was a lot of turmoil, like, circling that album. Yeah. 
Well, in 2008, you guys made a major change. You went to the twin concept albums, Anorexia Nervosa. Yeah. That was quite a step. Yeah, it was something, all right. That was quite an undertaking. I think that doing Age of Reptiles, which was extremely succinct, you know, 10 tracks, you know, three and a half minute structures, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, you know, the, the standard pop song mm-hmm. thing, right. left us kind of like, well, that was great and that was fun and we did it. Uh, let's not do that again. Let's do something that's really complicated and difficult that would challenge us. That ended up being the <laughs> Anorexia Nervosa. The challenge was um, writing a story that we would then have to write a soundtrack to. So we, we were holed up in this rehearsal space in California for you know, like a month with uh, everyone with the story and notepads and their pens, and we'd say, like, okay, now... During this, you know, these three sentences, the song needs to sound like this. And we would take the demos that I had been writing and try to rework them and be like, well, no, it has to change, you know, at least 30 seconds later because then this happens in the story. It was such an incredible amount of work <laughs> to make that thing line up the way that we wanted it to. And we, at that time, were like, well, I don't even know how you frame this uh, musically. And we ended up deciding that the best way would be with a kind of super dark, ominous industrial influenced sound more in the you know in the line of something like nine inch nails or the cure or something like that and that became anorexia nervosa and the original idea was to have you know it kept like morphing into something bigger because we weren't thinking about how hard it was going to be the original idea was just to have like 10 songs and every other song would be you know a different character then it was like, well, what if we split it into two records? And then one record could be one character and the second could be the other one. And we were going to package that together and make you know, a video for every song and all that kind of stuff. And Tooth and Nail, um, who was totally uh, supportive and willing to work with us, but trying to get us to wrangle the thing under control, were like, well, you know. And they came up with the idea of two actually separate albums that would be released on the same day and everything. So... Man, when that was done, it was quite a sigh of relief. Time for a vacation after that one? Yeah, there was time for not even thinking about songwriting for a long time. Oh, so, 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 so,
The Pig from the Anorexia album, and now, The Journey from Nervosa. been listening to the antidote which is heard through the facilities of trent radio 92.7 fm cfff peterborough tonight has been the first part of a feature on the band showbread tune in next wednesday at nine to hear the conclusion 
So we're going to head back to the interview with Josh Dyes of Showbread and our final track of the night, which is Out of My Mind from Showbread's The Fear of God album. 2009 came along, and you guys pulled out The Fear of God. Yeah, The Fear of God. I really love that album. I love the experience. We we recorded it completely different than all the other ones. The album was recorded almost entirely live in a room with everyone playing together at the same time. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it was it was such a blast. We had gone through the first, you know, couple of big member changes and we realized we were left with this band that um the remaining members had always had this kind of vision to do a really unrefined, you know, punk energy album that we would record live and really capture the essence of uh, kind of what Showbread did on tour in an album. Before we had members who weren't really into that, but then when we realized it was just us, we were like, well, now's the time to do that record we always wanted to do. So to me, The Fear of God, um, I kind of think of it as the end of a trilogy that would be, you know, No Surrenalism is Not Practical, Age of Reptiles, and then The Fear of God. And anorexia nervosa just exists in its own world over there somewhere. But uh, the fear of God to me really sums up those other two records. It combines the sound and kind of presents them in in a way that that we had been doing on the road for all those years. So I'm really happy with that record. Mm-hmm. 